This episode of The Incubator is proudly sponsored by Kiesi. The Article of the Month Commentary Brought to you by the Evidence-Based Neonatology Team Make sure to follow EBNeo on Twitter at EBNeo or on the web at EBNeo.org. Dr. Martin, Dr. Howe, thank you so much for joining us today. We're so excited um, to hear your review. Oh, thanks for having us. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, Eugene. <laughs> the overview of the paper. So I'll, I'll uh, just, uh, the title of the paper, Early Human Milk Fortification in Infants Born Extremely Preterm, a Randomized uh, Trial um, in Pediatrics of September of this year. Yeah. So Eugene, tell us a little bit about it. Yeah. So um, this is a very exciting uh, study that just recently came out in the Pediatric Journal. Um, and I had the pleasure of reviewing this uh, uh, paper in my own journal club in in Melbourne. So I thought it's a very good and exciting um, paper to present. So as you mentioned, the title was uh, the, the study was looking at early human fortification in extreme premature babies. And just a bit of background, I think the important um, settings for this study is that um, it has always been quite a challenging aspect in terms of neonatal medicine to ensure optimal nutrition in extreme premature babies. And I guess uh, quite early on, there's uh, a difference between um, parenteral nutrition and antral nutrition. And and we have quite a few studies as well that has looked into parenteral nutrition. But for this study early fortification of enteral nutrition is quite a novel um, study in comparison to other studies. And I guess from our, from all the neonatologist um, centers, I think the, what happened is the optimal goal is to, to provide a, a condition that will help um, the, the extreme um, premature neonates to gain optimal growth. We are also still quite limited in our understanding of what is the best approach to to provide that for for all the extreme premature units. And as more evidence get established for early introduction of breast milk, the next challenge will be to ensure what is the optimal calories and also optimal nutrition for optimal growth. And I think this study is, in a sense, the the good. The positive aspect of this study is uh, instead of just looking at overall weight and um, anthropometric measures, it also look at the um, lean mass accretion of all the premature babies. So that is kind of a background and setting for this study. I'll go to kind of a PICO background for this paper. So the question posted was, um, in extreme premature units, so less than 28 weeks old, does the human milk fortification with human-derived human milk fortifier result in an increase in fat-free mass when compared to infants who receive non-fortified breast milk in the early stages of life? So kind of, um, so their population was the extreme premature babies and the intervention will be from day two onwards, add addition of human milk fortifier. And the control for, for, for this study was um, the 
the population of neonates who doesn't get any fortified breast milk, and on and the outcomes, primary outcome that they look at was using uh, PPOT, so um, the air displacement platysmography to look at fat-free mass for age. And looking at the studies, a few other aspects. So, uh, so they had they use um, computer-generated random blocks to randomize the population. So they had quite a, a balanced number for both groups. And the other um, aspects that we noted was quite strong for this study was that there was blinding in all, in both the clinicians, parents, and also the evaluators. And in terms of follow-up period, um, was up to 36 weeks or post-discharge from hospital. And in terms of the setting, it was a single study setting. Um, so it was based in the neonatal unit in Birmingham Hospital. And the timeline that um, the study was conducted was between August uh, 2020 till October 2022, which we I thought was quite um, interesting. It was during the COVID period as well. So it must be a bit challenging to set things in motion. And I guess we already went through the outcomes, but there was also quite a few secondary outcomes that they look at in terms of um, significant weight loss, uh, weight gain velocity, and also uh, rest of the anthropometric measurements. So I guess that is kind of a background and uh, design of the study. Excellent. Excellent. Well, tell us a little bit about what they found then. Let's get into the results. Yeah. So in terms of the primary outcome, unfortunately, they didn't find any different statistical uh, significant difference between the Z-score in terms of the fat-free mass for age. But in terms of secondary outcome, they did observe that there was higher length gain velocity in the intervention group. Um, there was also a declines in, so sorry, the declines in terms of head circumference for each Z-score was less pronounced in the intervention group. So these two anthropometric measures kind of just, um, it's a positive findings in terms of the secondary outcome. The other um, important thing to note in the secondary outcome was that they noted the risk of um, spontaneous internal uh, intestinal perforation and um, neck and death was not statistically different between groups. Yeah, but they did, they did say that the, in terms of the numbers was a little bit too small to confidently say that. Yeah, no, I, I I thank you for reviewing that. And certainly I know, I, I imagine the first question people have is, is what, you know, what were those adverse events? What are the balancing measures? And like you said, they looked at neck, sip, death, and the combined outcome of neck, sip, and death. And I, I think some of the really other interesting features, I think, I, I'm, I'm imagining how this would go in my unit, the discussion around this paper. And uh, the the cohort was pretty small and, and pretty early. So I think that's really important. They had these 230 extremely preterm infants. The mean birth weight was 795 grams and the median gestational age was 26 weeks. And of Sorry, the 230 were assessed for eligibility. They included 150 in the in the final analysis. But of the 150, 31 had a gestational age of 23 weeks or less. Um, so that's the the our tiny, you know, our tiniest babies. So I think that's um, a 
pretty impressive group um, to to study. I think it's the group that we're all worried about. Cami, Dr. Martin, your your thoughts on the paper? Yeah, no, I I agree with you. You know, kudos to Dr. Salas. Uh, clinical trials are never easy, and during the COVID pandemic and recruiting the small babies, which is important because many of our nutritional studies are a little bit in the older birth weight and older gestational age babies. And as we advance our care in the more and more immature babies, what does the nutrition look like for them? And it may very well be different. And we anticipate that it's different as we go along the developmental age spectrum in birth gestational age. So Lots of lots of great um, contributions there uh, by this group, and um, thank you, Eugene, for your overall summary. Yeah, I think in general the strengths and you know are the fact that what we just said, plus it was blinded and randomized, the limitations a little bit, single center, and um, the smaller overall cohort size. But love the fact that he went after fat-free mass because as we also get better and better at understanding body composition and getting the ideas that um, or the conclusions that it matters and sort of their long-term outcomes, the question I'm always wanting for is, well, what do I need to do? What are the guiding principles to help drive that body composition to the proportions that you want to attain for their overall health but I think the, that guidance is a little bit lacking. Like, what does that mean in the, in the sense of energy delivery and protein delivery and carbohydrates? So I love the fact that he, he went beyond the traditional growth measures and say, okay, is this going to impact fat-free mass? Because in answer to that, now, now it evolves into a specific guidance around that with the endpoint of body composition. So love the fact that he, he really wanted to explore that and see and see what it meant. He didn't see a difference. He saw some other gains. And and as with any good study, he always brings up these other things that I wish I had uh, known about or, or uh, could look into further. So for example, you know, the absence of a bovine human milk fortifier, I think is, uh, you know, is that a missed opportunity or not? You know, he did start early at two days, but his control group waited until full enteral feedings. I think a lot of units have moved to an earlier uh, fortification strategy. So to me, it reinforces that earlier fortification before getting to full enteral feeds matters. Uh, but it would have been nice to have a little bit of a direct comparison to a strategy that didn't wait till the end in, in, in full enteral feedings. Um, so lots of good ideas in the implementation of the study and the endpoint. And, uh, you know, obviously still more to come. And I would say the final thing in the still more to come category is there, the Z-scores were still declining. And so there, there's still so much we don't understand in supporting growth and, and what that means to outcomes. Um, so you look and see, even with this early fortification, we're still seeing declining Z-scores in our anthropometrics. And maybe you can talk a little bit to, you know, why why is early enteral nutrition so important? Why, why does this early uh, fat-free mass, um, what's the big deal, right? Why, why do we need to, to secure this in our babies as early as possible? And like you said, you know, it's a, it's a, we're, we're all trying to reach that goal of not having these declining Z-scores. But what does it mean for babies long-term? Previously, when we were aiming just for weight gain, it was an accretion of fat, um, fat plus lean mass, 
which previous studies have shown that that can increase um, negative impacts in adult life. So they can have a um, higher proportion of uh, diabetes, hypertension, and the lean mass that was measured um, help us to understand the, the lean mass gain in like brain function. So that will be uh, important to assess as well, um, not just um, at term, but also a long-term outcome in terms of higher executive functions. So that's why our aim uh, has always been to help extreme premature babies to gain lean mass rather than just fat mass. Yeah. Yeah, no, I think that's perfect for that part. And I'll say the perspective I've always taken is that, you know, nutrition is a nutritional, uh, for premature infants is a nutritional emergency. And in a nutritional emergency in the perinatal, you know, right after the early postnatal period and, and through, you know, two, two weeks and a month of age, there's plenty of studies that show that your, your total energy delivery, your protein delivery, uh, even lipid delivery, when you, they look at those studies, those are directly related to the incidence of short and long-term outcomes. And so you don't want to delay. You don't want to know that you'll eventually get there, but it, <clears throat> it may be a month or uh, more than that. The, the, there's studies, I think, to support this concept of an early nutritional delivery within the first couple of weeks that it matters what your total attainment is in macronutrients and into the in baby's outcomes. Not to say, you know, and that's separate, right? That's a separate discussion from all the other developmental things you're doing in, in augmenting postnatal intestinal adaptation just by providing nutrition. So this wasn't a, a study about delay, but you don't want to delay for that. But you also want to attain certain metrics that we know have been shown to improve outcomes. And, and, and that's early. That's within the first couple of weeks. And that's the other thing I loved about this study and the way he set it up is it was a two-week question. It was an intervention that was a two-week. Um, and can changing that first two weeks from their standard of care matter? And so um, that's how I view, you know, why it is, why these important questions are important in studying these early postnatal periods. And I think the, the communities has accepted that, right, that we can we can move a little bit faster with the feeds. But I wonder, there are still some units, I'll, uh, including my own unit, <laughs> where we're still trying to get to this uh, last um benchmark, let's say. Um, so what do you think um, units will need to feel comfortable incorporating kind of this new step, this early fortification? Um, it seems like it's previously been thought that the baby has to prove somehow that they can tolerate some volume of feed, you know, before um, fortification. So what else do you think we need in the literature to help uh, help support this so that it may become standard of care. Yeah, I think that's a layered question. Um, there's, there's the first one is how early to begin that you feel comfortable with. And it is the reporting off of experience. It doesn't necessarily have to be a, a clinical trial per se. I think there's a lot of value when, when there's a practice change and people report on their practice change. And I've seen over my time in neonatology where it, it was until you got to 150 mLs per kilo per day before you added one fortifier or additional calorie. And that systematically went from 120 to 100 to 80 to 60. And then I know 
recently I saw papers regarding 40. And so I think it's, it's having those conversations with your group and your team and looking constantly reevaluating the nutritional data and showing um, examples of centers, whether it's within trials or, or cohort experiences and practice experiences, that this has been done and is being done, you know, with without any demonstrable harm in moving towards that. But it is also, you know, uh, I think you need to set up systems within your division where you also reassure your faculty, let's do this, but let's measure it. Let's decide on what those balancing measures are and let's report on that practice in our practice. Because I think also what may work in one unit may not necessarily be the same practice or what works in another. So I think that buy-in is that process of reviewing the literature, encouraging people to report on the literature, do the trials, come to a consensus and move your practices steadily with your own internal monitoring of that change of practices, including those balancing measures. And there's comfort, right? There's comfort in a nutritional protocol and a consensus where uh, you build that confidence to make those decisions at the bedside, that it is okay. This is something we've vetted as a group. This is something we're comfortable with. This is something we're measuring. And if it's not good, we'll know. And so I think that's, that's, one of the first major steps, you know, in doing that. The second question is the, the another layer is this, you know, about the human and the bovine, you know, are, you know, should it be different in your level of comfort? Does it matter what you're using? Is that fortification or not? And, um, and I think for that, we just need really good quality studies where that intervention is uh, specifically looked at where everything else is controlled for, your base diet's controlled for, the diet used to supplement volume is controlled for, and you're really trying to isolate the effect of the type of fortification. And does the type of fortification matter about when you start? And we really don't have the data. I don't think we have the data to suggest one is better than the other. And we definitely don't have the data whether, you know, uh, they can both be used, or, or I guess we have some human milk data. We don't have the data, I think, of bovine starting immediately at day two. Maybe we'll see a difference. I'm not sure. That I think should be just, um, you know, hopefully folks who are in this space will continue to, to push forward in doing and setting up those trials, but setting it up a way so we can answer that question um, and trying to isolate the effect of that intervention. I love that. I love that. I thank you both so much for your dedication to nutrition and for coming on to talk to us. Any closing thoughts about the the article and what that means for the future of our little babies? I think it reinforces that early fortification is an important one, whether it has to be at day two or sometime before you go to full enteral feeds, but it supports that fortification uh, to provide more energy and more protein has the short-term outcomes, at least in general anthropometrics. I think more needs to be, you know, needs to come regarding body composition and what interventions to promote sort of that optimal body composition. And I think, uh, and finally, it, it also just sort of, we have to think of better and better tools constantly of how we measure nutritional efficacy in, in more in real time. Uh, so we don't rely on having to, and the same thing with neurodevelopment. So we don't have to wait till the end of a stay or two years out before we have an understanding of what we did in the first two weeks mattered or not. Mm. So I look forward to all the smart folks that are looking at what are the earlier biomarkers of nutritional efficacy so we can link them closer to our practices and guide a little bit more precisely what we're doing at the bedside.
And Eugene, any last thoughts? I know. I, um, yeah, I agree with what um, Tammy was saying. And my my own thoughts during the earlier discussion was that I guess it it, it can be quite different comparing uh, North America with Australia. But even in our own setting, um, I was just telling Cammy that the availability of donor meal is quite different across the states in Australia. So in Melbourne, which is in the state of Victoria, we only have one donor center that we rely on, whereby another state, New South Wales, where Sydney is, they have uh, multiple donor center that different hospitals get their supply from. So I guess for a local Australian perspective, that will be the, the next challenge to make sure that donor maternal donor milk is readily available and that can um, uh, ensure that the different neonatal unit can start uh, early fortification for all the babies uh, as early as possible. Well, I'll tell you, that's a hot topic here in the States for us as well, actually. Um, so lots of legislation moving towards better access to, to donor milk. So we, we, we support you in the, in the struggle to get that for your babies. And I wish you the best of luck in that. Maybe you'll be able to do it before, uh, before we will. Um, but thank you both for your time. Have a great day. Thank you for inviting us. Always great to see you, Devon. Thank you for having us. Our pleasure. Our pleasure. Thank you for listening to the Incubator Podcast. If you like this episode, please leave us a review on Apple Podcast or the Apple Podcast website. You can find other episodes of the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or the podcast app of your choice. We would love to hear from you, so feel free to send us questions, comments, or suggestions to our email address, nikupodcast at gmail.com. You can also message the show on Instagram or Twitter at NICU Podcast or through our website at www.the-incubator.org. This podcast is intended to be purely for entertainment and informational purposes and should not be construed as medical advice. If you have any medical concerns, please see your primary care professional. Thank you.